Acts chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 32 through 37. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and of God's great blessing and how it was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the islands of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Today we are going to look at this theme of letting go because I think that as we look at the grace, the favor, the goodwill that was upon the people of Israel um, and, and particularly upon the, the apostles and these early believers in this early church, as we look upon them and that favor, that grace, what we also see is what it took for them to get there. When we think about favor or grace, I'm reminded of an ongoing debate that my brothers and I all have. And it's a conversation about who was mom's favorite son of the four of us. And I think we have all probably pretty much agreed that, that my oldest brother Dave is not the favorite son. And he would not take offense at that. He would agree with us um, that he was never the favored son. And um, my brothers, some of them think that it's me. I, I will still argue that it's my youngest brother, Brent, um, who is my mom's favorite son. Now, why is that important? It's important because to be favored means to have a special um, aspect of who you are around you. It's the same word that we translate as grace. So when you have favor, you have grace. Another way that they translate it is goodwill. And so the early church was experiencing this favor and this goodwill, this grace. And we know that this word from the Greek, charis, was an important word for the church because it identified who we were. And it continues to identify today who we are. Through Jesus Christ, you have now become one of God's favored ones. You are graced by God. You are experiencing the goodwill of God. In the early church, it was identified even by the outsiders because of that grace, that favor. 
In Acts chapter 2, we had this a few weeks ago. At the end of that chapter, verses 42 to 47, we hear about how that early church, as in our reading for today, were favored. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers were met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill, enjoying the favor, enjoying the grace of all the people. You see, the people of Jerusalem knew there was something different about this group of people. They knew that there was a way about them that was not conforming to the world, but transforming. And so, what we see today in our reading is a continuation of this identity of being favored. In verse 33, it says, With great spiritual power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So as the apostles are preaching and teaching about Jesus' death and resurrection, there is a great amount of grace and favor that is being bestowed upon not just the apostles, but all who have gathered to believe. And then it reminds us of this in terms of how even the needy were cared for. So within that community, there was no such thing as a poor person. They held favor, charis, of all the people, and there was a great grace, charis, upon them all. So why is this word charis, which we interpret as favor or grace, so important in understanding the point of today's sermon? Well, if we go back into Luke chapter 4, we have the story beginning at verse 16 of where Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth, and he begins to, to read the scriptures. He's invited into the synagogue to, to, to offer his interpretation, his preaching, his teaching upon the scripture. And this is the scripture that he selects. It is verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the people, uh, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor favor. It's from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. That's the text that Jesus selects. What he is identifying is that his ministry, his work, will begin the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's grace. 
And so what we see in these readings from Acts and Luke is that God is up to something big. After reading that scripture, Jesus offers his, his interpretation. This word of promise that he declares and that he will fulfill in turn becomes an indictment about the Nazarene's lack of belief. The Nazarenes don't believe he is the Son of God. They only know him as Joseph and Mary's son, the little boy that grew up in the neighborhood. They can't seem to get it through their heads that God has destined this child, this young man now, for something much greater. And so Jesus offers his interpretation by saying that the outsiders and the outcasts and even the Gentiles will receive this favor from God ahead of the chosen. How do you think that went over? God's favor has been promised from the very beginning of our scriptures. In Exodus, as God prepares Moses to lead his people to a promised land flowing with milk and honey, he promises Moses that he will strike the Egyptians with signs. And then at last, it says, in Exodus 3, verse 21, and then at last, Pharaoh will let you go after the last of these signs. And the Egyptians, not the Israelites, and the Egyptians will look with favor on you. God is telling Moses it's going to take 10 plagues. It's going to take 10 signs before Pharaoh is going to let go of you. But when he lets go of you, what will be amazing is that the Egyptians, your enemies, will look upon you with favor and goodwill and grace. After God's people fled, Pharaoh changed his mind so much for letting go. And as he changed his mind, the people began to worry because they were being pursued by the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were, were moving toward advancing against the Israelites. Let me read what happens here in, in Exodus 14, verses 10 through 12. As Pharaoh approached the people of Israel, the people of Israel looked up, and they panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why do you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you that we would happy, uh, happen? What would happen would, when we were, while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. 
so much for the Israelites of letting go of Pharaoh and Egypt. Maybe one of the things that I'm beginning to realize, I don't know if you are, that we can talk about letting go, but it is more difficult than we think. Sometimes we need to let go in order to experience the fullness of what God offers. In Jesus' lifetime, the religious authorities couldn't let go of their traditions. They wouldn't let go of their power. It was more important for them to, to see Jesus die than for them to let go of anything. In Nazareth, the Nazarenes couldn't let go of Jesus being Joseph and Mary's son. Even in the early church, in the reading that comes right after the one that we have for today, beginning of Acts chapter 5, Annas and Sapphira offer, gift, offer to give the apostles um, some money from sell, the sale of some lands and property that they owned, but then they changed their mind and they held some back. They, they didn't let go of what they had promised to let go. And it was a deadly decision. God grants us power. God grants us spiritual power. We talked about that last week. You have spiritual power. But the way that we receive that power is by letting go. Now, let me first say that when I talk about letting go, I'm not talking about letting go of your responsibilities. That is not letting go. If I told you, well, we're not going to make a decision about whether we should open and when we should open because everybody's going to be upset one way or the other. So I'm just going to let go of that decision and let God. How does that sound? It doesn't sound good. You see, we're not called to let go of our responsibilities. We're not called to let go of our commitments to our spouse, to our family. We are called to let go to our need for control, to our need for God's power. You see, letting go means dying to ourselves dying to our wants, and dying to our desires. Letting go means submitting to God. Letting go means surrendering. To surrender to God so that we might actually help and give to our neighbor. How about you? Are you ready to let go? Can you surrender? Let's listen to this.
surrender means that I will submit to God like those apostles and early believers did. That's, I believe, how they experienced God's favor and grace. They didn't receive power by holding on to it or grasping for it. They received their power, their spiritual power, through submission. That is one way that we as Christians, I believe, are unique. We submit. We don't find terrible things about weakness. We find great things about weakness. And we're not called to tell our other brothers and sisters how they are to submit. I mean, how easy is that for us? to look at others and tell them, this is what's wrong with you. That is not what they did. 
there was unity in the church because they each took responsibility for themselves and they each submitted to God. I would tell you that Jesus called his disciples to carry their own cross, not to put their crosses on other people's backs. Some of you know that Patty and I have dear friends in Minnesota, and uh, these dear friends adopted um, two children, two African-American children, Abby and Isaac. And they are the ages of our kids. We lived in the same community for six and a half years. We uh, were neighbors, and our children and their children became best of friends. So much so that even after we moved to Des Moines and then moved out here to Arizona, that we used to gather together, um, usually every, every summer as families. And every summer, Abby would come out and spend a week or two with us here with the girls. I remember in those teenage years, they'd be holed up in Meredith's bedroom watching movies all day and eating popcorn. And so we have been a part of their lives and they've been a part of our lives. And um, so much so that one of the blessings for Meredith and Caitlin when they moved after college and working in California for a couple years after they moved back to Minnesota, um, one of the, the blessings was more time with Abby. Abby met Zach, they got married. They have two beautiful children, two uh, twin sons. And the girls, our girls, shared with me the other day a tweet, or a tweet, a uh, uh, text, I'm sorry. I told you I'm so technologically savvy. They shared a, a text um, where eight-year-old Griffin was talking to his mother about his fear of what the police might do to him. He's a dark-skinned little boy. And as I thought about that, I thought, my goodness, what a difference my upbringing was. We used to play cops and robbers when I was a kid. I wasn't afraid of the police. I remember one of my friends wanted to be a police officer. I was going to be a pilot in the Air Force, flying a fighter jet. I mean, that's how I grew up. And so it shook me a bit to think that not every little boy grows up that way. And that's when I realized that I have to do some more listening. You see, I think that is the first thing that the apostles did was that they listened to God and they listened to their neighbors. They listened to everyone who had an interest in God and even those who didn't. Now, if you're wondering, you know, well, did Abby plant this in her, the minds of her kids? You know, believe me, that would, that would not ever happen. Abby is one of the smartest people I've ever met. She's got her master's in psychology from Northwestern University. She works as a psychologist for one of our Lutheran colleges. And she is just being honest about the experience 
that her sons will probably not just have today, but for years to come. I need to submit to God. I need to submit to God and spend more time listening to God and listening to my brothers and sisters of color. Now, I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I don't want to tell you. All I know is that I want to experience that grace and that favor upon New Covenant. I want us to be so blessed as that early church was. And for us to do that, it begins with our submission our surrender, our repentance. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you that you love each one of us. You love us, and you have come to show your favor and your grace upon us. As we build and rebuild this ministry at New Covenant, Dear God, I pray that we would be filled with your favor, with your grace, that people from the outside would look at us and say, now that is a church that I would like to be a part of because of that goodwill. Dear God, please help us to work towards unity, which comes from submission and which engenders great spiritual power. Open our hearts as well as our minds to the work that you are doing in and around us and help us to trust in that work and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.